Welcome to Inside New Mexico. I'm Derek Underhill, and I'm talking with the chairman of our Republican Party of New Mexico, Steve Pierce, former congressman of the 2nd Congressional District of New Mexico. And Steve, the kids are going back to school. What do you think? I think that if anyone ever doubts the power of public opinion and the power of public pressure, just take a look at our schools. The underlying science basically has not changed a bit from two months ago, from one month ago, from eight months ago. Kids have never been very vulnerable to COVID-19 and they're not very much spreaders of it, even if they do get it. Generally, it's very rare that they suffer heavy consequences. And yet our governor is saying that the science demands that we keep them home. Well, I really appreciate that our kids are back in school, but uh, just governor, if you would explain the science that you sent them back to school on. I think instead, what was going on is that she was giving in to the pressure from the teachers union saying that we're not going to go back. We're not going to go back. They get her their paychecks if they stay home. And so you can understand it. But then when parents and when teachers themselves began to say we need to be back in school, when the kids were saying we need to be back in school, when people became alarmed at the suicide rates and the mental illness, the substance abuse that they were seeing going on among kids who normally would be very good students and just this pointlessness and this aimlessness of the policies of this current governor was really putting our kids at great disadvantage. And so I think that the governor blinked under pressure. Now, to understand the power of the unions, keep in mind that the more money you give, the more power you have in political circles. And probably the largest single donor to Democrat candidates in New Mexico are the unions and especially the teachers unions. Now, that doesn't mean that most teachers agree with the unions. They're forced to pay the union dues. But a lot of the teachers disagree vehemently with the unions themselves. But the union bosses, they're the ones who write the checks and they have the power. Nationwide, we're seeing that. Illinois teachers refusing in Chicago to go back. The mayor, Democrat mayor, is saying, you are going to go back. And the teachers are saying, we're not going to go back. Same thing is going on in, in California and in New York. One of those states put $6 billion into more pay for teachers and into bonuses and everything else. And still, after getting all that money, the teacher said, no, we're not going to go back. So uh, it is really showing the ugly underbelly of the Democrat Party and their allegiance to these special interest groups. Forget what's good for the kids. Forget what's good for families. Forget what's good for the country. Just let the unions have what they want. And at some point, people are going to demand that we get rid of that union, that we listen to the teachers themselves, that we listen to the parents, that we listen to the students, and that we take control of our education system. And so that public pressure that is building on this governor to put our kids back into school, you finally saw her say, okay, we're going to put your kids back in school. Just a testament to the power of the people in a republic when they come together. Well, and it's interesting, too, because they've kind of lost their excuse because now we're vaccinating the teachers. Used to be, well, we the kids don't get it, but the educators are subject to getting the COVID virus. Well, now we're going to vaccinate the teachers. So they really had no excuse anymore. Well, they didn't really have an excuse before, Derek. Uh, they, uh, The teachers, believe me, they were going to Walmart without vaccinations. Well, they true. were going uh, to the big box stores. They were going to Home Depot without vaccinations. And so I just don't buy this that we're not going to go back to school until we get vaccinated. The teachers unions are so hypocritical. They expected the truck drivers to work nationwide to deliver food to the grocery stores. They expected doctors and nurses to work no matter what the risks were. They expected your first responders to work no matter what the risks are. It's just that the unions declared they were special and all they were trying to do is get paid for staying home. That's uh, basically it. 
And so that's one of their objectives. But I think that they've done a lot of damage to the education system and to an entire generation of young people in America. A lot of our students have lost a year that they'll never get back. Lost a full year. And many who were very good students before have become very sloppy students. And it remains to be seen if they can reestablish that discipline and the study habits that made them successful in the past. Uh, Kids that were trying to get scholarships, they will never get back those seasons in athletics that they didn't get to play. Uh, And so it's, it's been devastating. And keep in mind that in South Dakota, Christy Noem never shut the schools down once, and she doesn't even have a mask policy. They have no greater infection in the general population and certainly no greater infection among kids and teachers. And so Christy Noem showed us what we could have done without damaging the future of our kids. But this governor chose differently, and we will pay the price for decades to come. As we mentioned last week, Governor Cuomo is in trouble, and a week has gone by now, and he's in even more trouble, not just with the nursing homes, but now, as we record this, there are seven women that have come out saying that he has done inappropriate things to them. Now, where is the Me Too movement? When all of this is going on, what it tells us is that the Me Too movement is surely one more political arm of the Democrat Party, that they never really had objections to women having unwanted attentions forced on them. And so the Me Too movement has been desperately silent during this whole time. But again, that sense of public pressure is building in New York. So you now have 50 of the state legislators saying that he needs to be impeached, that he should be stepped down. But then you had two very strong voices, both U.S. senators, both senators from New York came in this week, Senator Schumer and Senator Kristen Gildebrand, and both saying that he should step down. And both senators are Democrats. Yes, uh, both Democrats and both demanding that he step down. This is the way that it should be in politics. You know, if it's only Republicans calling for him to step down, then it looks partisan and looks political. When Richard Nixon resigned the presidency, it was not because Democrats were calling on him to resign. It was Republicans who came to him and said, look, you don't have a way out of this. We are not going to vote to sustain you. And so Richard Nixon realized that he had to go. So when each party disciplines its own, then you have a sense of normalcy. You have a sense of rightness and wrongness. And so I commend those Democrats who stood up. I think they took too long. I think they remained very silent about the deaths, at least 13 to 15,000 deaths that were caused when Governor Cuomo insisted and put people into those nursing homes with COVID. And then they kept all the information secret and they began to falsify reports. Again, these are the sorts of things that got Richard Nixon. And so it's good to see the Democrats standing up and pushing forward. I do wonder where the voice of AOC is. I wonder constantly where the progressives are, because they're the ones who lead the charge and say that certain parts of the population are sexist or they're misogynist or whatever accusation they want to throw at them. Where are these commentators on Governor Cuomo? It's interesting. If it comes down to impeachment, that's going to be a very tough hill to climb. You have to, first of all, pass the articles of impeachment out of their House of Representatives. But then the Senate has to vote two thirds and getting a majority in the Democrat Senate. That's something they could do. 
getting two thirds, that's going to be a very hard hill to climb. And so I think we're going to continue to see this drama play out. And, and Como is just uh, is just arrogant enough. I don't think he's going anywhere. We'll see how that affects the Democrat Party in the next election. Steve Pierce and I will return in just a moment with this week's guest on Inside New Mexico. On behalf of the New Mexico Department of Health, take COVID-19 precautions. Wash your hands frequently for 20 seconds. Don't touch your face. Use a tissue or your elbow to catch your sneeze or cough. Avoid large gatherings and close contact with sick people, especially if you are elderly or high risk. If you have a cough, fever, or shortness of breath, stay home from work or school. Do not go to the ER or doctor's office without first calling the coronavirus hotline. And avoid all unnecessary out-of-state travel. Help prevent the spread of COVID-19. Welcome back to Inside New Mexico as Steve Pierce brings in our guest for this week. We're joined by a special friend of mine. Uh, I've known her since she ran for Secretary of State. Uh, that's got to be 20, 25 years ago. She was just a wonderful candidate. Sharon Klosashevich is a Navajo. She was unsuccessful in that, but she went on to become a state representative, someone who felt like the call to service was was very important. And then I will let her tell you, but she was also appointed later after that. During that time, Sharon also served in Washington, and I will let her explain that. But Sharon Klausovich, one of the conservative voices that that stands strong in the Navajo community, but also in New Mexico as a whole. Sharon, thanks for being on the program today, and uh, thanks for all the work that you've done in the past and continuing to do right now. Well, thank you so much, Steve. I really appreciate all the work you've done and the journey that political journey or path that you, has brought you back to New Mexico, that certainly has been a real gift for all of us. I'm a former school teacher. My first career job was as a school teacher of behavior disordered students in special education. And then I went to work for the state, children, youth, and families under the Gary Johnson administration with Heather Wilson as my boss. Then I went to Washington, and my gosh, what an experience I had there. The late President Albert Hale was one who took me from the state and hired me to work kind of like a lobbyist for the Navajo Nation with the Navajo Nation Washington office. And the ideal part of that job was being able to work with Congress, the highest levels of government within the United States, and do what I felt I needed to do to promote the Navajo Nation in all areas. And that was a tremendous experience. And that was when I decided to run for Secretary of State because it was like, wait a minute, we need to do something in New Mexico. Let's do it. So I jumped right in. No experience. I knew the experience. I, I had a lot of New Mexico experience and the national experience and jumped in. And, oh, my gosh, what a learning that was. You know, I just took for granted a lot of the activity that took place here in the Four Corners I'm um, from a little community called Goody Eye. I'm from that chapter. A great number of the people on the reservation, the Navajos, they make their living from the resources, uh, either mining, electric power plants, or oil and gas. Those jobs, yes. uh, maybe working in the service industry for oil and gas. And so as you look toward a Holland administration in this Biden presidency, when she comes in as Secretary of Interior, and I'm hearing from Washington that Republicans are going to only put up token 
opposition. So basically, she will be confirmed. What do you see under the Interior Department under a Secretary Holland? I see her, and she said it herself when she was being interviewed. I see Deb Holland fulfilling the far-left agenda regarding energy. Even though she says she is going to work with the Republicans, she's going to work with people who have interest in fossil fuel and the oil and gas, I hesitate on that because I look at her record as a congresswoman. I look at what she said. And even when she was here in the state as the chairwoman for the Democrat Party, I never saw her standing up or even giving an appearance whenever the discussion occurred regarding the power plants up here, regarding energy in New Mexico. And that, to me, to me, that shows her position. I do not expect her to show anything else but that support for the position of President Biden. She is going to support his agenda, and I see that she will be saying that she's working with everybody when she really isn't. And so your average person, the the worker, the, the resident of the Navajo population, do they understand all of this, or they're just trying to go and feed a family. They're going to work every day, taking their kids to school back uh, when we had school, try to raise them correctly, to respect the law, to respect others. And suddenly those good-hearted people are without work, they're without hope, and either homeless or living two or three generations in one house. That Did I understand you correctly, that the, the result of the Biden administration of a Holland secretarial position on the interior is going to be more hunger and homelessness. That will be the outcome of what we're facing right now under this new administration and new secretary. Mm-hmm. Yes, I see it now. I mean, it's already occurring. Her support right now is coming from the small land-based tribes. And there are more small land-based tribes than there are the large energy tribes. And so it is very impressive when you think about the number of tribes who support her. However, most of those tribes are not energy tribes. Now, you have represented the Navajo interest for decades. Tell me, if you were to describe the conditions on the reservation, say, 50 years ago, and then what we're facing today, have there been dramatic changes in the prosperity on the reservation? And if not, tell us a little bit about that. There have been dramatic changes, dramatic, dramatic I feel like there's a lot of mimicking of the Democrat platform on the Navajo Reservation to where if you don't mimic that, you don't have the tribal interest is how it's viewed. So anything contrary to what the Democrats believe in then is anti-Native, which is not true. I mean, that's absurd. I mean, it really is because what's happening now is that Democrat position is being supported over the needs of the Navajo Nation. So when the COVID money came in, we had uh, lengthy, lengthy discussions as to who was going to be in charge of that money and where that money was going to go. Us in the background were saying, wait a minute, let's go, let's follow the needs of the nation. And a big need is water. Let's get water to all the communities. And there were a lot of plans given as to what could be done. Then the electricity, you know, just 
basic infrastructure. Let's address that. Well, we're saying this in the background while the council and the Navajo Nation Executive Office are trying to come to some agreement as to how the money was going to be spent. They couldn't agree on the need, nor could they agree on how they were going to address the needs according to each branch. So there was a lot of it, politics going on and on and on, and how the Navajo Nation was not providing services, emergency services, to the people of the Navajo Nation. We also saw how there was a lot of uncertainty in, from leadership as to what should be done in terms of how to run the Navajo Nation during this COVID epidemic. The nation basically came to a standstill. Folks, we've been talking with Sharon Klasashevich, a Navajo, former state representative, former representative of the Navajo Nation in Washington, D.C. When she talks about the conditions on the Navajo Nation, understand that she knows from years of experience. Sharon Klasashevich, thank you very much for being on the program today. We appreciate your insight. We appreciate the op-ed that you have written and is currently circulating. So keep up your voice, one of clear, concise conservatism and a demonstration of why conservative values work while the liberal values of the left fail. Steve Pierce and I will be back in just a moment with more Inside New Mexico. Attention, New Mexico veterans. If you were honorably discharged from the U.S. Armed Forces, you've earned state and federal benefits, and the New Mexico Department of Veteran Services is standing by to assist you. State benefits include a veteran's property tax exemption, education and training, and transportation services. We can also assist with claims for federal VA benefits. The state of New Mexico and this radio station thank you for your service. More information at nmveterans.org or 1-866-433-8387. Welcome back to Inside New Mexico. I'm talking with the chairman of our Republican Party of New Mexico, Steve Pierce. Under President Trump, our southern border had the lowest level of illegal crossings in decades. Now under the Biden administration, all that has changed in a hurry. Yeah, I represented that district in New Mexico. About 70 miles of that southern border runs right through the second district of New Mexico. And, And I got to know many of the ranchers in that area very well. This is under President Bush when I first went to Washington in 2003. But under President Bush, the Border Patrol would drive along the paved road, Highway 9, down there, and they would just patrol along that. Well, sometimes Highway 9 is five miles from the border. Sometimes it is 50 miles from the border. And so if you lived anywhere between that road and the border, you basically had no protection. So people would point out to me when they had fences that they would erect to keep their livestock from walking into Mexico, that they'd put the fence up and the next day that fence disappeared during the night. And the next day they would see it on the other side of the border fencing someone else's cows in on the Mexican side. And so then their cows would walk across. They were not allowed to go get them. They were not allowed to go get their fence. They were just completely without representation in our U.S. government. And so I put tremendous pressure on the Bush administration. And again, Republican to Republican, it couldn't be perceived as a political act. Finally, we got them to grade off an area right along the the border fence, and they would use four-wheelers and pickups to drive that. And so we got some protection 
question. When President Trump came along, he began to build the wall and began to enforce the law. And so the crossings plummeted as people realized that they're simply going to be sent back. If they're claiming asylum, they're going to have to wait in another country while those asylum claims are processed. So we really saw border security for the first time. And, and again, I watched it very closely for 14 years. And to see the numbers of crossings plummet the way they did under President Trump, you realize that a, a border program really does work. That we still wanted the immigration, but we wanted it to be legal immigration. And so we saw that occurring. Now then, under President Biden, he suspended the President Trump program for 100 days. What that did is send a message to people on the other side of the wall that you got 100 days to come here. And if you get here, during that 100 days, nothing's going to happen. And so it's caused tremendous pressure. And so right now you have, I forget, something like three to 5,000, maybe even as many as 8,000 unaccompanied children who are in the hands of the Border Patrol. When President Trump was in office and when President Bush was in office, they described holding those kids in cages. Where are those voices that are protesting the treatment of kids right now? It is very unsafe what President Biden is doing by advertising that if you come up here, you're not going to be apprehended you're not going to be sent home. And so it is increasing the pressure on the border so that already we have hit 100,000 arrests of people who have crossed illegally. And that's not even touching the number of people who are doing it. It's just the number that we've arrested. Those are figures that have never been seen before in history. We're looking at a surge coming toward the border that the Border Patrol is saying that we have no capability to interrupt. We can't stop it. It is not a crisis. It is an absolute disaster. It is unsafe for the people doing it. The coyotes are getting wealthy because they charge people usually five to $10,000 a person to bring them up here. And sometimes the people they're bringing don't survive the journey. You saw the crash of the vehicle, I think it was in California, with what, 23 people? In yeah, a, stuffed in an SUV, yeah. In an SUV. How do you get 23 people in an SUV? They they would have died as, of asphyxiation, if nothing else. Yeah. And so you, uh, you realize the unsafe conditions that are facing people who are listening to President Biden and saying, if we simply move north, we're going to be able to stay. President Biden came out and said everyone should wear a mask. Do the coyotes make sure that the people they're bringing over are wearing masks? It's a great question. But uh, also when they run the COVID test, they're supposed to be running them on every person that they detain. And the truth is they can't keep up. So they're telling local communities that you have to do that. That's not being done. And so when they do test, then at least 12% of the people crossing over are found to be sick with COVID. In this country, the COVID infection rate is way below that. And so what they're doing by telling these local communities, get them in, process them and get them out of your town keep them moving or the stacking up in those communities along the border, the people who are stacking up are going to become a third or fourth crisis that are going on. So they're trying to move them out across the rest of the country. Now they're carrying COVID cases everywhere. And like you said, they're not checking to see if they've had immunization. They're not checking to see if they're wearing their mask or keeping social distancing. There are no checks at all. And so this is the disaster that the Biden administration is pushing forward on the border between the United States in Mexico. All right. Now tell me about this event that's coming up in Amarillo. Well, we typically, the Republican Party has its statewide Lincoln Day. That's where we celebrate the fact that we are the party of Lincoln. So we're the party that 
freed the slaves. We're the party that voted for the Civil Rights Act. We're the party that has done the most for immigrants, have done the most for minority populations in the United States. So we celebrate that in our Lincoln Day. Now, typically we do that in Albuquerque. We have people come from across the state, but uh, the state is still shut down. Texas has opened up, and so we're going to have our Lincoln Day in Amarillo, Texas. We have an exciting program already. It's going to be a getaway weekend for people to go and just have dinner at a restaurant to begin to feel somewhat normal. But we're also going to make it a work weekend. We're going to talk about the plan for the next two years. We're going to talk about that special election that is coming up to replace Deb Holland now that she's confirmed. So we have the work weekend, but we've got two exciting speakers. We've got Governor Christy Noem is coming in. She's speaking on Friday, May the 14th. Then on Saturday, the 15th, we're going to have Jim Jordan. And then on the 16th, we're going to have a, a just a special chapel time for all the members. And then shortly after that, everyone will be leaving to go back home and get ready for the work week. But uh, again, May 14, 15, and 16, I urge you to contact the Republican Party of New Mexico and, and uh, join in with that. If you can't make it, then we're going to stream both Congressman Jordan and Governor Noem. I will charge a nominal fee for that, but uh, we're hoping to have 10,000 people streaming and five or 600 people in the audience. So it's going to be a great event for us. Sounds like fun. And so again, if folks want more information, they can contact Republican Party headquarters in Albuquerque. The phone number is 505-298-3662. And I'll give that again at the end of the program. Folks can also contact their local county Republican Party as well, right? Just talk to anyone associated with the Republican Party. Our county chairs are more active this year than ever before. Our elected officers in RPNM, the most active group ever, were meeting weekly. We had a big meeting in person last week in Albuquerque. And the excitement of turning New Mexico red, not just to turn New Mexico red, but for, but for what it would mean for the people. Just like Sharon Klausashevich said during our interview in that middle segment, that the policies under Biden are resulting in homelessness and hunger. And so the importance of turning New Mexico red is so that we can reestablish prosperity, we can reestablish the jobs, we can give people hope so that they stay in this state instead of moving to Texas. We can keep their kids in school, then they know that their kids are going to get an even break. So that's the importance of turning New Mexico red. Thank you, Steve. If you've been listening and like what Steve Pierce and I have been talking about and want to get more involved in turning New Mexico red, you can do that by getting involved with the Republican Party of New Mexico. Check out the website at www.gopnm.org. Party has a Facebook page and a Twitter account. The handle is at New Mexico GOP. If you would like to talk to somebody in person, call party headquarters in Albuquerque at 505-298-3662. That's 505-298-3662. For Steve Pierce, I'm Derek Underhill. We look forward to meeting with you again next week right here on Inside New Mexico.